0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America
1: Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues.
0: Good day to you and welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Pegues, your host. This week on ACF, we will hear from D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine on his latest lawsuit Against the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. It's an interesting conversation. These aren't Republican values. These aren't
1: Democratic values. These are American values. And so we need to bring this suit in order to deter, bring accountability, get recompense and restitution, and seek justice for the injuries that the District of Columbia and its officers continue to suffer
2: going to hear from the Anti-Defamation League. We are seeing the mainstreaming and normalizing of this kind of extremism. And so when you have elected officials and and other very influential people who are, for example, spreading lies about the 2020 presidential election, um, that is something that mainstreams and normalizes this violence and this kind of extremism.
3: And my conversation with Luke Broadwater of the New York Times. Mark Meadows had participated with the committee up to a point. He had given them 9,000 pages of documents. But then when it came time to actually sit down for the deposition, that's when he stopped. And that's when they hit him with the contempt charge. D.C.
0: Attorney General Carl Racine is suing the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and their alleged leadership. In a recent news conference, the D.C. Attorney General compared the trauma caused on January 6th to September 11th. A.G. Racine, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Why, why did you make that comparison?
1: Uh, I think factually, um, the scenario uh, are very, very congruent, um, but there are differences that are important. In 9-11, for example, we were attacked. The people who attacked us wanted to strike at the heart of our freedom, indeed, our Western democracy. That's what Osama bin Laden said. It was a covert attack. That's a difference. Here, we had Americans dressed in red, white, and blue, uh, claiming to be patriots, however, attacking our freedoms and our democracy. The second similarity is that, of course, people were harmed. Now, don't get me wrong, there is no doubt that over 3,000 deaths as compared to, I believe it is now, seven or eight deaths from Capitol Hill, January 6th, that's a significant difference. I am not equating uh, the number of lives lost. What I am equating, though, are the first responders. In the case, of course, of New York, brave fire men and women, brave police officers and other emergency personnel literally went into the fire to try to save human life with respect to Washington, D.C., law enforcement, Capitol Hill officers, others, and especially Metropolitan of the District of Columbia Police went into the Capitol to repel the attempt to interfere with the democratic process, here the transition of power. I think those similarities are striking and important to make. Also, lastly, I think it's important to note the response of the U.S. government. After nine eleven, of course, uh, we organized. And whether you know you like it or not, the longest armed conflict in the United States ensued twenty years in Afghanistan. Here, what happened? Well, those who rioted, insurrectionists, mobsters, uh, including certain hate groups, they walked out of the Capitol. Literally, not many, if anyone, was arrested. And so the response here by the Office of Attorney General for the District of Columbia, by filing suit, by being the only and first sovereign government to sue uh, the two hate groups, uh, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the over 30 uh, individuals, is an appropriate response for when people
0: cause injury, harm, and threaten our freedom. Do you think, I mean, you know, at last count, about 700 people charged, arrested. Do you think enough people have been held accountable in connection with January 6th?
1: You know, I'm not going to second guess the Department of Justice. Uh, this is an incredibly complex uh, and obviously intense uh, investigation. I've heard it said and read that this is w- one of the most complex criminal investigations in the history of our country. So I am not here uh, to uh, c- uh, condemn or even criticize uh, the Department of Justice's criminal prosecution. What I'm here to say is that the District of Columbia was civilly injured, at least, that the District of Columbia uh, devoted blood sweat and tears uh, to our country in order to repel uh, the attack on our freedom, and that our officers, three of whom have committed suicide, many of whom are still suffering physical and psychological trauma, need to be recompensed for those injuries. And let me just add one thing. Accountability, deterrence, Restitution, recompense, and justice, these aren't Republican values. These aren't Democratic values. These are American values. And so we need to bring this suit in order to deter, bring accountability, get recompense and restitution, and seek justice for the injuries that the District of Columbia and its officers continue to suffer.
0: Yeah, I I was there that day and I know people probably get tired of hearing that, but I will never forget that day and then the aftermath seeing the images of a man beating Officer Michael Fanone with a flag, a flag stick. You know, when I the first time I saw that image, I was sickened. I had to do a story that night for the Evening News and seeing that image, to me, said it all. How how much chaos there was that day and how the people there had no sympathy whatsoever for those police officers.
1: Well, Jeff, I had the same feeling as you. Uh, Michael Fanon uh, is an extraordinary human being, uh, in my view and the view of a lot of people. He's a hero. Michael Fanon uh, spent 20 years uh, working in the streets of the District of Columbia. He, by the way, has acknowledged that he voted for President Trump as is his right in 2016. And you're right. When Michael Fanon was jumped, beaten, dragged down the stairs, hit with poles, either with, uh, sprayed with a taser or a shock gun, he suffered a heart attack had a concussion, and continues bravely to talk about his mental health trauma. Let me just remember, remind people what Michael Fanone said. Some guys started getting a hold of my gun, and they were screaming out, kill him with his own gun. We're talking about a public servant, a father of four. That's right, Michael Fanone is a hero. He stands for America's best values, regardless of who he voted for. That was a criminal mob that hurt the District of Columbia, and that's why we're filing this lawsuit.
0: Yeah, I I think mob that word is apropos because having I have never and I've been in a lot of different uncomfortable situations. I have never seen. The level of hate in people's eyes that I saw that day. Um, I started out covering the story at the Ellipse, but it, it was pretty clear to me that after Rudy Giuliani spoke and then President Trump spoke, the tone clearly changed. They started beating on our live truck. I had to drag one of our producers, a young female producer into the truck because I was concerned about her safety. But the people who were beating on our truck, I could see in their eyes this anger that I don't think I've ever seen that before in my life. So when you talk about mob and what we saw that day, you know, it it always amazes me as we look back and you have people who say, oh, they were just tourists. No, there was something different in that crowd, something that was out of control. And you really saw it with the images that we still see of that day.
1: Hey, Jeff, um, I think you've characterized it well. Uh, We here at the Office of Attorney General, we love history. Let me give you a little bit of history here. Of course, the U.S. Capitol, the symbol of democratic government throughout the world, is a building that has stood since 1800. And inscribed in the Capitol are extraordinary quotes, including a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Of course, he's our country's longest serving democratically elected president. What did Franklin Roosevelt say? that made its way to the U.S. Capitol. Here's what he said. We must remember that any oppression, any injustice, any hatred is a wedge designed to attack our civilization. What we had for the last several years was a former president who was hell-bent on dividing us, using arbitrary distinctions to inflame hate groups in order to take away our hard-earned yet fragile freedom and democracy.
0: Let's talk about this lawsuit again. Let's get back to that. The Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, what do you think it is about these groups that link them to the point that you think you have a legitimate case here by lumping them all together in this lawsuit. What is it that links them? Is it this anti-government feeling? Is it hate? What is it, in your view? You know, as a lawyer and here a civil prosecutor, I
1: just have to follow the evidence. And the evidence is that the Proud Boys uh, and the Oath Keepers um, are open and notorious about what their mission is. And what their mission is, is to create a country that is not a multi-ethnic, egalitarian country where people are judged based on their talent and hard work, but instead to create a country that is narrow, that is open only to some and not to others. And those others tend to be black and brown people. So that's what fundamentally links their, if you will, ideology. What links the evidence in this case are communications, emails, social media posts, and videotape that absolutely, in our view, convincingly established, certainly at the low threshold of a preponderance of evidence, that there was planning, organization, conspiracy and participation, action, in a violent insurrectionist act that resulted in people getting hurt and are almost losing our freedom and democracy. That's why we're bringing this lawsuit. What is next in the case? When do you go to court? So- The way the legal process works, and I, you know, really urge um, your listeners, and I know you have many, uh, to be patient because the legal process requires that after a filing of a complaint that we serve each individual defendant and the organizations with such a complaint. They then have some time in the legal process to either answer the complaint where I guess they might deny our allegations or they can move to dismiss the complaint that usually takes after service of the complaint 45 to 60 days. Now the legal process is not as fast as ordering a a pizza these days. That's where the patience is necessary, but your listeners should know. The Office of Attorney General is steadfast, is resolute, and is going to see this matter through.
3: And
0: you, you know, you, you've you done that with other cases. Uh, you've taken on President Trump, former President Trump, in, uh, in several instances. And in one case that stands out to me, because we did, you know, after the inauguration, we looked into spending connected to the inaugural balls and the celebrations. And what people told us at that point, our sources were telling us was, you know, they spent a lot of money. And the question is, did they account for the money that was spent? So that case is still working its way through the court system. You talk about patients. <laughs> you know, um,
1: the court system does require patients, sometimes Tylenol, um, because I understand that, you know, People want, and I want, my team wants resolution. Uh, But let me tell you quickly before we get to the inauguration case that either, both, I should say, combined uh, individually and with other Democratic attorneys general, we sued Donald Trump 153 times. Now, look, one could say, oh, it's just the partisan Democrats, and they would be right unless they took a look at the results. 80% 80% of those 153 suits were suits where we prevailed. Now, 80% foul shooting in basketball is pretty good. 80% win rate in, in filing lawsuits is exceptional, and it shows that the defendant is a law breaker. Many of those cases, of course, sought injunctive relief for illegal actions uh, that the president's administration was seeking to enact um, by executive order and otherwise. And so many of those wins were federal courts, that means Democrat judges, if you will, judges who were appointed by Democratic presidents, judges who were uh, appointed by Republican presidents, said, whoa, federal government, you can't do that. You're violating the law. Now, as to the inauguration, it's really important because the inauguration literally happened, what? Two months after former President Trump was elected. That's when he introduced himself to the United States by saying, I am going to break the law. I am going to begin to collect monies that I shouldn't collect and bring it into my personal business. We also filed suit, of course, on the emoluments matter. That's where he actually encouraged foreign governments to come and do business at his hotel. And all you had to do was just ask the foreign governments, why are you staying at the Trump hotel? And here's what they would respond, how they would respond. Well, we're staying there because we're going to go ask the president a favor. And we want him to know that we love and respect him with money. That's illegal. That's unconstitutional. It's more than breaking a norm. But let's get back to January 6th. What that was, was domestic terrorism. Back to your first question, on 9-11. What's similar is 9-11 was foreign terrorism. Here's domestic terrorism. And let me just go to Michael Fanone's words and and we can end the interview unless you have any other questions. But Officer Fanone said the following, the domestic terrorists who stormed the Capitol and violently assaulted hundreds of brave law enforcement officers were stoked by groups promoting the big lie. Those of us who suffered physical and emotional harm trying to defend democracy will never forget, nor will we cease working to hold accountable everyone responsible for inciting the mob wherever the evidence
0: may lead. You probably hear, though, there are some people who have Trump fatigue. They're tired of hearing about this stuff. They want to look forward instead of looking backward. How do you respond to them?
1: I would urge them
0: to look
1: forward with this lawsuit, look forward to a country that is free, look forward to a country that believes in the simple principle of every man and woman has one vote, an American citizen. The reason why we're filing this lawsuit is they're standing up for our freedom and democracy because if we don't, you better believe it's going to happen again and Who knows whether the freedoms that we fought for hundreds of years ago will all be sacrificed because we failed to stand up when necessary? That's what the Office of Attorney General, the ADL, the Anti Defamation League, States United, aided by two great law firms, Paul Weiss and Deckert, are doing by filing this lawsuit. We're standing up for American values.
0: D-C-H-E, Carl Racine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Also joining us is Eileen Hershinov of the
2: Anti-Defamation League. So you are a part of this case. What do you expect to accomplish? Well, what we hope to accomplish, Jeff, in this case is, uh, first of all, accountability. Accountability for the extremist, violent, vigilante groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and over 30 individuals who plotted, carefully coordinated, financed, and recruited for the attack on the Capitol. We want to hold them accountable. We want compensation for those injured, like the MPD and the officers who were injured and even killed and died because of that, uh, that attack. We want punitive damages and injunctive relief. We want to bankrupt these groups and dismantle them. And deterrence. As a, as a
0: deterrence, but uh, realistically, How much of that do you think you're going to be able to accomplish?
2: Well, I have high hopes. I've litigated these kind of cases before. And I want to tell you, even when you get a default judgment or they seem to have no assets, you get a judgment and you're going after these groups and these individuals for the rest of their lives on any of their income or their assets until the judgments are satisfied.
0: How much of this case is related to the fact that in Charlottesville, Uh, There was a recent lawsuit there. The organizers of the deadly Unite the Right rally were held liable for engaging in a conspiracy. How much did that case and the results there factor into this case?
2: Well, that case is one of many that have used similar conspiracy laws, both federal and state. So we began to uh, plan for this case before that case won. We were aware of it. It's not the first time these kind of lawsuits have been brought they were brought uh, against the Klan in the, in the past and also by ADL uh, against white uh, supremacists. This is the first time, however, that a municipality is bringing a lawsuit of this type. If we could, let's transition to the work that the ADL does, which as
0: a, a journalist who covers law enforcement quite a bit and domestic terrorism, we do rely on ADL research quite a bit. What? How would you characterize the domestic terrorism uh, threat matrix, if you will, in the United States at this moment, post-January 6th?
2: I think it's really high. I think it's even higher than it was going up to January 6th. I unfortunately don't th- think we've seen the end of this, although obviously in bringing the lawsuit and in going after Uh, these kind of groups, whether they're neo-Nazis and white supremacists or these extremist vigilante militia type groups, we're hoping to stop that. But we're going into a very polarized election year. uh, And uh, with a lot of violence and a surge of extremism, ADL has been tracking and monitoring that. And uh, we're worried. Look, in the last 11 months, ADL's Extremism experts in our Center of Extremism gave law enforcement 1,100 actionable tips about extremist activity. This is a very fraught time.
0: Well, what do you think is ramping things up? Why are there specific uh, are there specific issues that you see out there that are really driving this kind of activity up at this moment?
2: Absolutely, Jeff. Listen, one is that we are main, we are seeing the mainstreaming and normalizing of this kind of extremism. And so when you have elected officials and, and other very influential people who are, for example, spreading lies about the 2020 presidential election, um, that is something that mainstreams and normalizes this violence and this kind of extremism. So even though our lawsuit, for example, is against the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, Many, most of the folks that engaged in that violence had never been associated with violent extremism before. And they were older than what we normally see and came from and were employed uh, and and even professionals. That's incredibly scary. So everything's becoming a polarized, weaponized, partisan weapon. Um, And uh, and then, you know, you have covid. You have all sorts of upheavals, and those are times in which extremism surges as well. And of course, we're particularly worried at the ADL, not only about the extremism generally, but about the utter surge in anti-Semitism we're seeing here and across the globe. Well, is it
0: it racism driving this? Is it an anti-government mentality driving this? What is it?
2: I think it's both. Um, I think the, the, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers are more on the anti-government um, kind of spectrum, then uh, there, there is some intersection with white supremacists and, um, and neo-Nazis. But there's also a lot of conspiracy theories out there. QAnon, we have, we're, the ADL has been tracking almost 200 candidates uh, over the last few months for elected office at different levels who are QAnon adherents. Uh, so that's particularly troubling. So we're seeing this rise of conspiracy. We're seeing huge amplification of online hate um, through the major platforms as well as fringe ones, and we're and and so there's a, a almost a perfect storm of issues that are coming uh, to the front to the fore, which is driving this.
0: But do you think lawsuits like the one that you're a part of can really make a difference here, or? Does it just raise the profile of these groups who, you know, these groups that might not otherwise get the attention?
2: Well, there is, of course, no one silver bullet. This is a tactic uh, in what has to be a multifaceted campaign against this kind of hate and extremism and violence. Um, I think they do have a difference. I have watched, for example, in the Charlottesville case, as some of those individual defendants, Stopped, even said and acknowledged publicly that they were stopped, stopping to do things. They were stopping going places because they were getting bankrupt. They were being financially harmed. So uh, one of the things that the um, Charlottesville uh, case on the, the website on that case from the uh, Integrity for America uh, group, they have a list of the actual prove- provable evidence-based effect that these kind of lawsuits can have. I also think that when you're normalizing and mainstreaming extremism, when the word is out, you do this, we're going to go after you, we're going to get a judgment, and that judgment is going to follow you and every asset and income, y- income stream you have uh, for the rest of your life. That is a deterrence to the mainstreaming and normalizing
0: Eileen Hershinov of the Anti-Defamation League. Thank you. Oh, good.
2: Thank you. Good day
0: to you, and thanks for joining us on America Change Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Begays. As we speak, the Justice Department is considering whether to charge Mark Meadows with contempt. The former chief of staff for former President Trump cooperated, then decided he wasn't going to cooperate with the U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. In November, Steve Bannon was indicted for contempt of Congress. He made a decision from the jump not to cooperate with the select committee. And even though Meadows cooperated, and then he didn't, it looks like he will be charged with contempt of Congress as well. This is getting really ugly for some of the former president's most trusted aides. And I suspect the vice is going to be tightening. And it's going to be tightening on more people who were around former President Trump in the days, in the months, leading up to January 6th and the insurrection. First things first, let's dig into the work of the January 6th committee. New York Times reporter Luke Broadwater has covered this committee extensively. He joins us now. And Luke, thank you for your time. I'm assuming that you're already counting on Meadows getting indicted.
3: Uh, thanks for having me. Well, that's a decision up. that's going to be up to the Justice Department, as you said. Um, I do think, though, um, with uh, Bill Barr out at Justice and Merrick Garland in, that there will not be the same um, uh, approach to uh, blocking uh, these types of referrals from uh from Congress from a democratic led Congress uh, so I I do think it's uh it's likely that uh Justice Department will uh, get an indictment here from a grand jury um, but uh, mr uh, Meadows does have some more substantive arguments than mr Bannon did you know Steve Bannon was not in the White House he uh, you know, couldn't really claim executive privilege. He um, didn't participate at all with the committee. Not only did he not show up for a deposition, but he did not um, produce any documents. Mark Meadows had participated with the committee up to a point. He had given them 9,000 pages of documents. But then when it came time to actually sit down for the deposition, that's when he stopped. And so he didn't come in the day before. He told them he would no longer uh, come in for a deposition as agreed to, and that's when they hit him with the contempt charge. So he he participated up to an extent, but not the full way. So that's going to be something for federal prosecutors to look at now. Um, the referral is in their hands. And did he live up to the obligations of this subpoena or not? That will be up to up to them to decide.
0: Well, what was it, in your view, that compelled him to just stop i mean was it was it something that the former president said to him or did he send a message to mark meadows hey stop talking i don't like what i'm seeing
3: i mean what happened well i can give you two explanations for that one is from uh meadows attorney and the other is what democrats believe happened so um the first is uh um Mr. Meadows' attorney says that he had always tried to uh, not be charged with contempt. So he knew that this was a possibility. So he tried to participate with the committee as much as he could. He turned over all these documents that he believed were not covered by executive privilege. That's anything that wasn't in the realm of the White House. So he didn't turn over any conversations with him and say um, say the president or you know, a a different person inside the White House. But he did turn over lots of things he got from outside the White House. Uh, Texts from uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, this uh, extreme PowerPoint calling uh, for essentially an overthrow of the government. Um, He gave that all to the committee. So he hoped to satisfy them in that way. But um, he could not uh, sit for the deposition because President Trump instructed him not to under executive privilege. The other thing they say is that um, the committee filed a lawsuit against him with, uh, I'm sorry, filed a subpoena against him with Verizon seeking even more communications than the ones that he would turn over. And so that they felt like uh, ended their negotiations and caused them to back out. Now, what Democrats believe happened is this all happens the same day Mark Meadows, releases his book. And his book creates a a bunch of buzz where he says, you know, Trump actually tested positive for coronavirus. He includes a number of things that, that, you know, sources say Trump was not happy about. And seeing the president's, um, the former president, his former boss being displeased with him caused him to back off. That's what Democrats have said on the floor of the House of Representatives. So you know the, those are the two sides. But whatever the case may be, he isn't participating anymore. He's not giving them documents anymore. He's not coming in for a deposition. He did offer to answer questions through a written written messages, uh, but that's not the kind of accommodation nobody uh, any other witness has been afforded. So at this point, they feel that he is an uncooperative witness, and he will be held in contempt.
0: What about former President Trump? What has been his level of cooperation with this investigation?
3: Well they haven't asked President Trump for uh, for a deposition yet. He hasn't been hit with a subpoena himself. Um, I assume if that step is taken it will be near the end of the investigation once they've accumulated all the evidence they plan to accumulate you know oftentimes in an investigation you want to work up to the top. So, uh, but what they, the first step the committee did take was issue a records request to the White House archives. And so, um, by law, President Trump and Mark Meadows uh, had to uh, preserve all official documents. In fact, this was, uh, there's sort of this famous story in the White House that Trump would always rip up his documents and they'd have, be, you know, some more conscientious people in the White House would have. Workers come in and then tape them all back together for the for the records preservation. So there was an effort to preserve lots of records. And um, now the now Trump is a was opposed to turning these over, and he filed suit against the committee, and he tried to keep 770 documents secret. These were uh, draft speeches. These were uh, messages to state legislators. These were handwritten notes concerning January sixth. These were draft executive orders concerning January 6th, and he wants none of them to be in the hands of the committee. Uh, those That suit is now probably headed to the Supreme Court, but every every lower court has ruled for the committee and said they had every right to these documents. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's not been cooperating. <laughs> now, now, Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee and a, and a Republican from Wyoming, has said, uh, we will... We will not debate this with the president in public or on TV, but we may well call him to testify under oath. And then if he lies about a stolen election under oath, we can charge him with lying to Congress. So that's that could be where this is heading maybe next year.
0: I watch the developments coming out of this committee, and oftentimes she is the face of this committee. How do you think that is playing for her? And if I'm not mistaken, she she's in a campaign right now.
3: Yeah, she has a she has a, a primary challenger for for next year, um, uh, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump. So Trump is is trying to get her out of office.
0: Okay, and she is pressing forward on this committee. Her decision to join the committee obviously wasn't popular among uh, Republicans who support former President Trump. But how do, you think, uh, how do you think she is doing in terms of, uh, you know, balancing her support at home uh, with, you know, getting to the bottom of what happened on January 6th?
3: Well, I think that Liz Cheney has made the calculation that the, this, this role of serving on the January 6th committee is the most important assignment of her political career and she's willing to bet her seat on that so i think she knows in a deeply republican area that an investigation that can lead up to the president the former president who is of the republican party will not be popular with her primary voters but she has determined that uh democracy and preserving democracy is more important than that and that the um, actions of Donald Trump and his allies in the lead up to January 6th and on the day of January 6th are so in, are, were, were so wrong that she ha- she has a duty to investigate. So, you know, this may not be actually a politically wise decision. You know, she has been removed from leadership in the Republican Party. She is, I guess, treated as an outcast in the House of Representatives among Republicans. You know, I just saw some of them heckling her on the on the floor of the house the other day. But it's her determination that um, if she loses her seat over this, so be it. Her exposing all the facts from this uh, from the January sixth attack on the Capitol and Donald Trump's role in spreading lies and misinformation about the election need to be investigated. And so she's not going to let you know a seat uh, a seat of the House of Representatives stand in the way.
0: Let's backtrack. You just said uh, that you noticed uh,
3: her fellow members of Congress heckling her. Yes, I mean that. I don't. That's not an, actually an uncommon occurrence. Um, uh, I was watching the floor debate the other uh, night, and there was a dispute between the two sides uh, as the January sixth committee was presenting the referral uh, for a criminal ch- uh, contempt charge against Mark Meadows. And uh, she went over and huddled with, um, Benny Thompson and some of the other members of the committee who are Democrats on the democratic side of the aisle. And I, you know, there was some sneering and snickering from the Republicans. And, uh, Jim Jordan said something like, she's look at her sitting with the, with the Democrats. And, um, that's not an exact quote, but it was some sort of, he, he made some sort of loud, um, uh, uh mocking comment. Um, So, and and, you know that's that's not uncommon. Marjorie Taylor Greene often tries to confront uh, Liz Cheney on the floor. She's called for her to be kicked out of the party. You can't really do that. I mean, she was elected by the voters. It's not up to um, not up to members of Congress to kick each other out of the party. But um, so she, you know, she's taking a lot of flack from from the uh, Republican side of the aisle. She doesn't have a lot of friends there anymore. But. I do think there's a number of the more moderate members of the party who are still left who who do respect what she's doing, even if they don't say so to the to the cameras.
0: What about Adam Kinzinger, another Republican who bucked his party and uh, became a part of the committee?
3: Yeah, Adam Kinzinger has decided not to run for office again. Um, he, like Liz Cheney, is, is the only other Republican on the panel doing this investigation Uh, he, he's an interesting case because, you know, he, he, like Liz Cheney, they both voted with the Trump agenda, the overwhelming majority of the time. You know, I think Adam Kinziger's like 98% of the time or something, much more than the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, but because this one issue, January 6th, uh, has become a litmus test in the party. Basically, you have to go along with Donald Trump and say that this was fine nothing really bad happened. Um, You know, the president, uh, you know, yet yet there's sort of a loyalty test and they haven't decided that they, you know, they, they value the truth and this investigation over a loyalty test. And unfortunately, um, and, you know, maybe this is a little bit of commentary, but many, many Republicans have not made that choice. They've chosen loyalty over, over facts.
0: Well, we'll continue to follow the developments related to the January 6 committee and this investigation. You know, as you noted, this is going to go into well into next year. Uh, I suspect, now that we're talking about, it, I suspect they'll try to wrap this up before the midterms. What do you think, Luke?
3: Oh, yes. I mean, everybody knows that um, in January of 2023, the House is likely to go back to to uh, being controlled by Republicans. And at that time, this investigation will be ended. So now there's been talk of ending it even quicker if they can finish their work more quickly. They've interviewed more than 300 witnesses already. Uh, Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, has said maybe by March or April they could finish of next year. But I do think, um, realistically, they're going to want to finish before the midterms, before there's a lame duck Congress and a change of power. Because uh, once that happens, which many people believe that's how this next election will go, based on historical trends and the redistricting and some other factors, uh, that they need to wrap this up before uh, the committee is dissolved.
0: Luke Broadwater, New York Times. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. That is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget to share the podcast. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever...